There's two ways we can use scripture. The, the one way would be that we can go over to scripture and, um, and look at it in its own context and try and understand it, understand uh, what it teaches us about God, what it teaches us about ourselves and what God requires of us. And that's the one way you can use scripture. Um, the other way we use scripture is we, we bring it over here to our context um, and we, we look at how those theological truths um, apply to our lives, how they help us understand our lives and what we're going through um, and how they transform us. And it's really in that second way primarily that I, I want to use scripture in this session. Um, and so not to take you to various passages and, and tell you... Um, you know, what these mean in their context, but to take these truths and bring them over to our context and, and help you to see how they apply, um, to help you see how they transform, and to help you get a perspective of um, what God says so you can reinterpret your situation, and particularly as it relates to adoption and the various things we might face um, um, in relation to adoption. So, that's what I hope to do. And the Bible really teaches that to know and not to do is not to know. So in a very real sense, until we've taken these great and lofty truths about God and brought them down into the trenches of our life and seen them worked out there in our lives, we haven't understood them as we ought to. And that's exactly why Jesus Christ came. God incarnate. He took the, the glory of God and he brought it down into the trenches of, of humanity and he clothed it in our frailty so that we could understand it in terms that we could understand. And so that's my prayer. That's what I hope will, God will accomplish as we um, spend some time looking at his word and how it applies to our life. So, so let me pray and, and ask God to do that. Father, you've, you've heard what I've just said and how true it is that we need to, to see your glory in our lives. And we thank you for sending Jesus Christ. We, we see your glory most clearly displayed in, in the most surprising place in the cross of your Son. And so we thank you that you know us, you know our weakness, you know our blindness. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit that you gave us so that we could understand you and we could understand your word and we could see our lives as we ought to, as you see them. And so we just ask for help now um, in this time that you would show us your glory and the glory of your Son. And by the power of the Spirit, you would transform us into your image even as we spend time with you. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So how did we become a family? Well, I was born and raised in Joburg. Um, I met my wife um, in high school. We were high school sweethearts. Um, and so we went off to the same university. Um, we've been married for 18 years. We have seven children, um, three biological children, four adopted children. Um, we went to premarital counseling, got married just after uh, university. Um, our premarital counseling lasted all of two hours. I don't remember anything from it except this one thing. The minister said, it's very important um, before you go into marriage that you settle some foundational issues about how your marriage is going to work. And, and one of those foundational issues is that you must know and agree on how many children you're going to have as a couple. 
And so Megan and I, it wasn't difficult. We both agreed we weren't going to have any. <laughs> and it was really because we'd become Christians at varsity, and uh, we wanted to spend our life um, proclaiming the gospel, taking the gospel to those who'd never heard, to, to be a part of God's redemptive plan. And we saw children as a, as a hindrance to that, as, you know, that would slow us down, that would get in the way, and we want to serve God, not children. And um, that meant we really had to, to have a look at what God, God's Word says about the place of family and the place of children. And, and I, you know, what I've done in this session is I've just looked at some truths uh, that God has taught us from his word and that have led us in this process of adoption, what he's taught us about himself and his word. And, and the first one is uh, God has designed marriage for redemption. That's what we had to recognize, that God has designed marriage for redemption. And to see that, I'd just like you to turn in your, to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 actually um, read from verse 27, just after the creation account. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so there's the first command, not very difficult to understand. Um, uh, Basically, uh, live for my glory, uh, to display my glory in all the earth. Have children and teach them to live for my glory and display my glory in all the earth. Um, and then we know the fall happens. And so we have the first family getting ripped apart. And we have the world getting ripped apart and falling into sin. And God, <clears throat> God going about, setting about a redemptive plan. A, a plan to fix what was lost in the fall. And um, as he proclaims to Adam and Eve what's going to happen, we have the, the first fuzzy, as it were, uh, indications of how God is going to set about redeeming the world. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, uh, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And yeah, we have an indication that God is going to send... One, someone through the seed of a woman who will, who will crush the head of Satan, the serpent. And there you have it, that God has committed himself to a redemptive plan um, where the family is at the heart of it, the seed of a woman. Redemption is a family affair, God the Father sending God the Son to accomplish redemption. God could have accomplished redemption and sent his son in many different ways. But God here yeah, says, I'm going to send him through the seed of a woman. I'm going to use the family. And I'm going to put my son in a family and through that then to accomplish redemption. And so as you, you go on and you get to the next major step, as it were, or stage in, in God's plan of redemption, it would be the Exodus. If you go to Deuteronomy 6, You'll see what God says there, Deuteronomy chapter 6. After God delivers um, Israel from bondage in Egypt, and um, he gathers them together and he gives them the law and his commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
He says this, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he is reminding them, he's revealing himself to them. This is who I am. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so he's, he's telling them, how should you respond to who I am? You should love me with all your being. And I think sort of explaining something of what that looks like and how that will take place. These words are to be on your, your own heart. You are to take them to heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so we see, yeah, in the next phase of redemption, again, the family is central. As God reveals himself and, and tells his people how they are to live in, in response to who he is and how they are to love him, he says, love me, know this word, have it on your heart and be diligent to teach it to your children. God has designed the family for discipling children, the next generation. And so when we come to the end of the Old Testament, as it were, the last book of the Old Testament in our English Bibles, as the the Old Testament is closing out, you might want to turn to Malachi. And really, Israel have been exiled. They've come back from the promised land. Um, They're not enjoying, they're living as foreigners in the land. The land is... Not, uh, they're not enjoying the blessings of the land as they expected. And they are asking why. What has gone wrong? And what do you think God's answer is? Well, he's got a number of answers. But certainly this is part of it. Malachi 2.13. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. So what is God saying? He's saying the family fell apart. That's, that's part of what's gone wrong. The family's fallen apart. Those marriages that I created and that are bound together by my spirit, they've fallen apart it says verse 15 did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and what was the one God seeking godly offspring and so God's plan of redemption is intricately connected up with uh, um, the family his plan to redeem the world his plan to redeem you and I his plan to redeem the nations is closely connected with his uh, his plan to redeem the family and to use the family. These are not two different plans. They're complementary plans, not competing plans. Children don't get in the way of redemption and of God's plan of redemption. They're an intricate part of it. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we come to Ephesians where where, uh, Paul um, rehearses God's redemptive plan in the first three chapters. And then he tries to apply that. He doesn't try. He applies it to, to what? In, in Ephesians chapter 4, the church. And then he applies it to what? In Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, the family, the household. 
It shouldn't surprise us to find that in Ephesians there we see God has left us with two great pictures of redemption, two great pictures of his love. The church, marriage, and the church. And those are closely connected. Those are not two different pictures. They're a picture of God's love and God's plan of redemption, marriage, and the church. Christ's love for the church and the husband's love for his wife. God has designed marriage for redemption. And so these two vehicles, as we seek to, re- to proclaim the gospel, it's not just the church that proclaims the gospel, but it's the family that proclaims the gospel. It's not just the church that is an emblem and symbol of Christ's love. It is the family that's an emblem and symbol of Christ's love. Our marriages were designed for redemption. They're much bigger than just you and I. And so here we are thinking we're going to go serve God's plan of redemption as a married couple and children are getting in the way when God has designed this to be complementary that as the nations of the world are reached, the children of the world are reached through the family. And as the church proclaims the gospel to the world, the family proclaims the gospel to his children. And so marriage is not just for you and I. And what that means is if we are asking ourselves as we consider adoption, are we, are we just asking ourselves, what is comfortable for me? What is convenient for me? What is good for our marriage? And we, we're not asking the right question. We would never have had kids or ever adopted if we never changed our idea of what, the, what our marriage is actually for. We should be asking, what does God want to accomplish in my marriage? How can God's glory be maximized through our marriage? How can we serve God's purposes in our marriage? And the Bible is very clear to the answer to that question. Godly offspring. And so we decided to have children. We got our heads around this. We decided that good idea after all. We married quite young. And so we had a plan. We'll wait four years. And then on our fifth year, we'll, uh, we'll have our first child. And that's when we realized that um, you don't order children like McDonald's burgers. <laughs> I'll have two to take away with extra sauce. No, God sovereignly gives children. That's the second lesson we had to realize. God sovereignly gives children. After trying for a year, um, nothing was happening. We, we had various tests done. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was less than a percent chance the doctors gave us that we could actually fall pregnant. And I, and I guess that's you know when we started thinking about adoption as, as an option, as a possibility. And we had a desire still to go to the mission field, and, and in many of the countries we were looking to go to, um, uh, children are, are neglected. And so we could see ourselves as you know sort of taking on these children of the community and loving them. Um, Turn for a moment with me to to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. 
says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, no amount of human cunning and scheming and planning and power prevails against the Lord's plans. Verse 2. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. No amount of human effort can even provide our daily food if God doesn't will it. This truth came home to us when we tried and we tried and we tried, but try as hard as we could, we could not do what only God can do, and that is create life. And it's a, it's a mistake to think that because we go on contra, contraception or we come off contraception or because we make application to adopt or because we sign on the dotted line that we have actually got our children for ourselves. I don't think it's a coincidence that these verses precede verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are from God. God alone gives children. Whether he gives children by way of procreation, whether he gives children by way of adoption, God gives children. God gives a child to a family and a family to a child. That is his sovereign right and ability. Maybe it's not even accurate to think of children as belonging to us. But if we could speak of children belonging to us, we must understand that they do not belong to us because we make a decision. They belong to us because God makes a decision. And his decision is ultimate. And that's important so that we can accept God's sovereignty in this. God's sovereign timing, God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign way. We have to submit to God when it comes to our children. Yes, he uses means. Yes, he uses application forms. Yes, he uses procreation. But ultimately, children are from him. We saw this when we finally did try and adopt our, our first child. And um, we heard about these two million orphans out there. And so we said, well, you know, let's, let's be a part of the solution to this. And uh, began going around to the various homes, putting our name in different places. But do you think we could get a child? Unbelievable. I still don't understand why it is that we could not get our hands on a child. But we couldn't. Every door seemed to be closed. Every opportunity was a dead end. Because children are from God. In God's timing, in God's way, according to God's goodness, God's sovereignty. However they come, with whatever baggage they come, with, with whatever health issues they come, whatever background they come, whatever disabilities they come, they come from God. And if we do not receive them from God as such, 
as his gift in submission to him, then we don't receive them as we ought. And so, as verse 3 says, yeah, God gives to his beloved in his sleep. And as we slept, God was busy weaving together this wonderful life in the womb of Megan, my wife. And nine months later, we had our first child, Matthew. And that's when we learned our third lesson. God desires our death. <laughs> what a shock. What a shock. We'd wanted this child for so long. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong in the birth. Um, eventually, after laboring for I don't know how many hours, they had to do a forceps delivery. They grabbed him wrong. They gripped him right over his face, bruised his face. They had to rush in a pediatrician to check. They hadn't permanently damaged anything. In the meantime, my wife couldn't deliver her placenta, so she had to go in for an operation. Um, and here I am standing with this new little boy. He's crying his lungs out, and I don't have the hardware to do anything about it. And, I, and I'm just standing there for what seemed like hours. It was a long time, wondering what's going to happen. He was crying and crying and crying, and that's all I remember about him for the first year. I have never met a child before or since who cries so incessantly until my mom started telling me about me. <laughs> I thought maybe there's a genetic connection there. I share that because the transition to parenting is not easy for all of us. It involves many different challenges and sometimes adoptive parents have a difficult time transitioning into, into parenting. And it's very easy for them, particularly, to, to look at this difficulty as something relating to adoption. When often it's just something relating to parenting. It's difficult for all of us. However children come, they do come as a shock. And very often, parenting problems, you know, we can look at it and, and, and sort of think the problem is the child. When very often the problem is the parent. It's a parental problem. We the problem. Not our children. Often what lies at the heart of our struggle is that we just are not dead enough to ourselves. We're not dead enough to our own com comforts, our own desires, our own preferences. I like what Diedrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I think he got that from Mark 8.34. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's discipleship. That's the Christian life. That's not just parenting. We're on a road as Christians that leads to our own death, that the life of Christ might be more clearly revealed in us. As Christians, we've come to understand that, that our sin is what led Christ to his cross. And we're so grieved by that, that we want nothing more to do with ourselves. We don't want anything more to do with ourselves. We want to be rid of ourselves. We renounce ourselves and we follow Christ on this path that leads to death. Megan and I gradually realized that, and it took a while, 
we gradually realize that if we want to enjoy our children and enjoy serving God and God's purposes in our lives, then we have to die. We have to die to our right to have eight hours of sleep, our right to a warm meal. We have to die to our right to hobbies and sports and me time. Now, God might bless us with those things, but if we're going to fight for them, we're going to find ourselves fighting against our children for them. And so the Christian life is a long, slow, painful walk down death row. My death and Christ's life. And in my experience, many of the struggles we have, even as adoptive parents, are just struggles with dying to self. Our, our, our adopted children are not really the problem at all. It's my attitude's the problem. My sin is the problem. My un- unwillingness to serve is the problem. My faulty attitudes and perspectives and unbiblical desires are the problem. Megan lay awake uh, one morning, 3 a.m., trying to burp Matthew. And she said, Lord, I can never do this again. But God is gracious. And so while we were studying in the States, we had two more children, Hannah and Sarah. We came back to South Africa and we decided we'd like to adopt. Why? James 1. Care for orphans and widows. Didn't seem like a difficult thing to understand. Faith, our our love for God, um, produces good works. Good works like wanting to care for those who aren't loved in our society, those who are vulnerable, those who can't help themselves. We understood God's perspective of the family, that this is part of his redemptive plan to teach children the gospel through their parents. And so we wanted to adopt. As much as they try, you know, an orphanage is never a home. A caregiver is never a parent. A fellow orphan is never a brother or a sister. God has ordained the family for the raising of children, and there is no substitute. So for us, it was a simple decision. This is something we can do. It's something within our economic ability, um, within our stage of life. Um, the best thing we can do for an orphan is just bring him into our family. That's, that doesn't sound too hard to us, to be honest. And so we had to learn our fourth lesson. God looks at the heart and fashions the whole. God looks at the heart and fashions the whole. Man doesn't look at the heart. And I think we had ignored the context that we live in. We live in a society that doesn't understand adoption fundamentally. When, why adopt when you can have your own children, as we regularly asked? We live in a society that is blinded by racism, not just South Africa. We've seen this the world over. Wherever we've gone, there's racism of some form because it's part of our fallen sinful nature, isn't it? But South Africa, well, we legalized it. We legitimized it. We taught it in our churches. We promoted it in our laws. I'm still part of that generation that as a young boy, addressed 60-year-old men and women as boys and girls because that was more polite than to address them by the other names that they were so often called. We never went to school with them. 
We never mixed with them. We never learned their language. Never went to their homes. Never went into their neighborhoods. Never had anything to do with them. They worked in our homes, but they weren't allowed to use our bathroom. They weren't allowed to eat with us. They weren't allowed to mix with us. They weren't even allowed to use the same utensils as us. They had this little metal bowl and cup like the dogs. And that's the perspective that many of the people around us still have. Many of our non-believing family and friends, that's still the perspective they have. And we'd be bringing a child into this extended family and this society. If something got broken, it was always these blacks. If something was stolen, it was the blacks. They were lazy, they were ungrateful, they were dirty, they were rude. They couldn't be trusted because they're fundamentally different to us. And so obviously we knew we'd be going against the grain by bringing one of them into our family and calling him our son. I don't think we understood fully what that would entail. The things that have been said to us, I wouldn't repeat. And I say this because you've got to take into account the context in which you are in. It's not like that for everyone. But if you're going to get involved in cross-cultural adoption, you're going to face racism and you're going to face persecution at some level. As we've considered each child that we've considered, are we going to adopt another child? Number one on on our cons is the persecution. We just don't know if we can go through that again. We just don't know if we want to face that again. That's the bad news. The good news is in 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's good news. Jesus says, if you, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. There's a cost involved. And Paul reminds us in Timothy there, if you want to live a godly life, if you want to follow Christ, then understand this, that the path of following Christ necessarily involves suffering and hardship and persecution. If it doesn't, there's something wrong. Maybe you're not on the right path the path of Jesus Christ, the path of the cross. And so when we face suffering, when we face persecution, that is an affirmation we are on that path with Jesus Christ. What a privilege. What a privilege. You know what Philippians 1 says? Philippians 1.29. You may want to turn there. Philippians 1.29. It says, You have been granted... You have been granted as a special honor and privilege. That's what that word means. You have been granted as a special honor and privilege that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe. Well, we understand that. To believe in Jesus Christ is certainly a special honor and privilege. Any of us would say that I believe in Jesus Christ is a gift of 
greatest value. I wouldn't exchange it for anything in the world. But look at what Philippians 1.29 says. To you it has been granted that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also, coordinating conjunction, also, not only believe, two great gifts, faith and suffering for Jesus Christ. In case we missed it, he says it twice. For his sake. That is the incredible privilege of the Christian life. To suffer for the glory of Jesus Christ. What better suffering can there be? What surprised us though was not so much the racism out there, but the racism in here. Obviously, Megan and I, when we became Christians, we clearly saw the wickedness of racism. We quickly understood it's the wrong thing. It's anti-biblical. We know the verses, Romans 10, 12, Galatians 3, 29, Colossians 3, 11. They all say the same thing. Yeah, there's not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. There's no place for racism in God's world and certainly not in Christ. We understood these truths. But somehow, in the recesses of our heart, there it still was. When I brought Stephen home, I'd never touched a black person's hair. And when I touched his hair, it felt like a pot scourer. It felt strange, different, and maybe not just different, maybe dirty. Maybe deep down, these weren't conscious thoughts, but deep down, I noticed I was using a different wash rag to wash him than to wash my other kids. And I caught myself in and said, what are you doing here? What's happening Why are you doing this? Because the racism is not just out there. We can know the truths up here, but we don't know them as we ought to know them until they've been brought down into our own context and, and lived out by the power of God's Spirit, by virtue of His grace. We went to the baby home when we finally heard of Stephen, this little boy, six-month-old, three-month-old at that point, who was available for adoption. And so we went to go and see him. Now, what we were going to see, I have no idea. Because think about this for a moment. What do we see when we see a, a person? We see their features, their face, their, their facial features, their proportions. Maybe we see something of a demeanor or a personality vaguely. I mean, just cast your mind back to that day that God sent Samuel to go and anoint the next king. And he lines up all Jesse's sons, 1 Samuel 16, in front of him. And, uh, and what is he looking at? Stature. He's looking at what man can only look at. Because man can't see anything beyond the outside. But God says, no, that's not the one. He says, he says to him, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
God doesn't see people or orphans or children the way we do. God sees as only God can see. He sees the heart. He sees what He's created and what He's purposed. When we go and see a child, a young baby, what can we see? We can't see their intelligence. We can't see their personality. We can't see their giftedness. We can't see the ambitions they'll have one day. I mean, they're a vastly different person to what they will become when they're an adult. We can't see any of that. Even in the case of biological children, the kind of genetic um, variation you get from, the, from a, a husband and a wife is so vast, we have no idea what kind of child we're going to get. Will they be healthy? Will they be sick? Will they have learning disabilities? What will their abilities be? Will they have a bubbly personality? Will they keep to themselves? We can't see those things. We can't determine those things. We have to accept our children from God as He's created them to be. And so what exactly were we going to the baby home to see? I don't know, but I'll tell you what we did see. His nose. His nose. That's what we saw. And as I, as I held this little boy in my hands... Uh, it seemed to me that his nose was so big that I could look all the way down his nostrils and see his brain. And I was thinking to myself, Lord, surely there's one with a smaller nose. (laughs) Now, no Christian should have thoughts like that. I was already a pastor at the time. No pastor should have thoughts like that. And so when we left the home, I kept those thoughts to myself. I'd settled in my heart that this would never come out my mouth. And so Megan and I discussed the whole experience. We were beating around the bush and we had this and that and what we thought and everything. And then finally it came out. He's got such a big nose. How ridiculous. How ridiculous to judge the worth of a person by the size of their nose. It took us another three months to come to the decision that we could love a person with a nose like that. It's, it's what's in yeah. Not just what's out there. That's the problem. God sees the heart. And he fashions the whole. Turn with me to Psalm 139. This is what we had to come to terms with. Psalm 139. Verse 13. You, David speaking to God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We had to see that Stephen was different. That he was not the same of us as us, but he was wonderfully different. He was fearfully and wonderfully made and fashioned in the image of God, fashioned to be exactly as God designed him to be. Beautiful. Handcrafted by God. God doesn't see as man sees. It's really irrelevant. When we come to consider adopted children, you know, what is... Who were their biological parents? Were they breastfed? Were they bottle-fed? What were the circumstances surrounding their birth? What is the color of their skin? What are their physical features? We can't see and know any of that. We need to receive our children by faith from God. Because God alone knows who they are, who he created them to be. And God doesn't make mistakes. So it came to our fifth child and our fifth theology lesson. God loves sinners to the uttermost. God loves sinners to the uttermost. We adopted Paul for very different reasons than Stephen. Um, we had kept contact with the home um, where we had got Stephen from, and we went to visit every now and then, and we watched this little boy. You know, other children were coming and going, but this one little boy um, wasn't. He never had a particularly winsome personality, and he was getting older and older, and so we understood that the chances of him being adopted were getting less and less. And so God really gave us a desire, a compassion, for this one specific little boy whose story we'd kind of been watching from a distance. And um, Stephen had grown up a bit. We got, got over a lot of this baggage and issues, and he was the cutest little thing. He had a bubbly personality. We loved him, we love being his parents. Every, you know, his his personality spills out onto everyone, and so you know we thought, well, let's let's do this again. You know, felt like a million dollars taking this little boy home. Rich, God had blessed us with another child, and now we don't have all this baggage we got to work through. Man, were we wrong? Were we wrong? Paul's father had left him with a neighbor and disappeared. We don't know if that's his name. That's the name we gave to him. Nobody knows where he comes from, um, how old he was, what his background is, his heritage is, what happened to his parents. Um, he was eventually removed from the neighbor and he was hospitalized for three weeks because of the abuse to recover from it. The scars are still on his body. And what about the ones we can't see? And so... We brought this little boy home, and he's the hardest thing we have ever done. He is the hardest thing we have ever done. If I knew how difficult it would be, I would never have adopted him. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I often said that to God. I felt a little bit like, you know, I'd been tricked into this. Sometimes we feel that way. He couldn't speak English, hardly. 
We didn't know what language he was from, so we couldn't understand one another. He was effeminate. So all this background. Only ever wanted to sit on an adult's lap, and he was much too big to be sitting on adult's laps. Every time someone would come and visit us, he would want to go home with them. He would kick and scream and cry and carry on. It was embarrassing, besides being deeply offended by that. Yeah, we've brought this child home into our own family, made him our son, and anyone who comes, he'd rather go home with them than stay with us. These strange kind of hallucinations. I remember one night having to physically constrain him from running around like a wild maniac from these imaginary snakes in the room. And he, he derived no comfort from, from having us near him, no assurance like any other child would from, from saying, don't worry, dad's here. Nothing. Nobody liked him. My children were old enough to begin recognizing some of the, pro- the problems. They didn't like him either. Is there any way we can just send him back? Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait around till we had our life fixed up. He didn't wait around till we had our act together. God didn't wait around till we were acceptable. While we were still weak, while we were unable, while we were rebellious, while our sin was still a stench in his nostrils and an offense to him and his righteousness, while all of that was true of us, God demonstrated his love for us. While we were still sinners. And his love transformed us. His unconditional, undeserved, unmerited, inexplicable love, that is what transformed us into his image and is transforming us into his image. It's by God's love that we rebels were turned into sons and daughters, that our sin-stained garments were replaced with radiant, righteous ones. It's by His love that our wretched lives have been redeemed. And God poured that same love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. How can we only love the lovable? How can we only love those who are easy to love? 
those who are acceptable, those who are clean, those who are nice, those who are obedient, those who talk the way they should. And so we lived with this verse, not for months, for years. This was our life verse. This is what we required of our children and of ourselves. That we feel love, that we have some sort of warm, fuzzy feelings, was there some sort of personal parental bond? No, just the opposite. How can you have warm, fuzzy feelings towards someone whose behavior and words is an offense to you? But God doesn't ask us to feel love. He asks us to demonstrate love. And he showed us exactly how to do that. That even while his wrath was upon us, God demonstrated his love toward us by sending his son. And you know what? There's times when you don't even like your biological children. If you're honest, there's times when they are so obnoxious and rude and talk back that you find it difficult to like them. But you still love them. And so we had to learn this kind of love, God's kind of love, that God loved us while we were still sinners. And it's been the most amazing thing to watch the transforming grace of God through this redemptive vehicle of the family. We did nothing. We did nothing special. We didn't treat him any differently. We didn't have any special programs for him. We simply brought him into our family and made him part of the love relationships and the sin relationship that go on in our family and to watch the transforming grace of God in his life. has been the most significant thing we have ever done. Can you believe that in the same person I would find the most difficult thing I've ever done and the most significant thing I've ever done merged together into one act of adoption? And so after two years we adopted another one, Rebecca. By now we had no requirements. We just wanted a little girl and we wanted to call her Rebecca. And I got a call from one of the homes and they said, there's a little girl, she's three months old, and her name is Rebecca. And I, I remember Megan, she was astounded. I said to you, you will never believe what her biological mother has called this little girl, Rebecca. And we brought her home and I, and I think she was what some adoptive parents experience. It's an absolute joy from the beginning. No problems, no baggage, no issues. Just Immediate bond, enjoyment, the whole family enjoys her. And so we kind of thought we've, we've got it down now. We finally got this right. We've, we finally see God's perspective. And then came Joe. We were kind of in two minds because Megan and I are getting on. And so we, we have to start making a decision. You know, either we're going to adopt another child or we're going to accept that our family's done. We, we, this is it, we're complete, and we're going to move on in, in this sort of status. Um, and so we spoke to our children, said, how do you feel about this? You know, you know what are the sacrifices involved. And they said, more. <laughs> and so we took them along. 
I don't know about the wisdom of that, but we took them along to various orphanages to go and look at the children that are there. And, uh, I mean, there were over 10 children that we could have adopted. How do you choose? Should you choose? We'd never actually been in this position of having to choose between a number of options. And we were deliberating with this, and then we got this email about a two-year-old boy uh, with cerebral palsy in desperate need of a home. I can't say we were looking for a special needs child, but I can't say it was out of the picture. I mean, I think our whole family, as we watched us engage, we were not looking for the cutest child. We were looking for one that most needed a family. They all need a family. And so we went to see Joe. What were we going to see? We were struggling with this. What will this do to our family? Well, God has designed marriage for redemption. We're back to that same principle. What is the purpose of family? Do we still believe that our purpose for marriage is not just for ourselves and our own comfort and our own pleasure? Does God have a redemptive purpose for our lives and for our marriage? Do we believe that still? We were struggling with the fear of the unknown and the fear of the known. We knew something of what this might involve. God sovereignly gives children. I mean, one of the things with cerebral palsy children is you actually don't know where they will turn out, how they will turn out in terms of they could speak or not speak, they could walk or not walk, they could be interactive or they could be partially blind. You have no idea how things are. They could be dependent on you for the rest of their life or they could live relatively normal lives. Do we believe that God is sovereign in giving children? Do I still believe, Psalm 139, that he is fearfully and wonderfully made? And when God knit him together in his mother's womb with cerebral palsy, that God wasn't having a bad day? And so we're back at these same truths. What will it cost us? What are the implications We don't know all of these things, but do we believe that God knows? God knows us, and God knows him. God knows what we do not know. God looks beyond the externals to the heart, and he sees the heart of the matter. Do we believe that? Are we willing to pay the price? was one of the questions that weighed upon us. God desires our death. Same principle. God desires our death. We'd had a taste of the suffering of adoption. We were struggling with what it might cost us, how much more we would have to die. Yet at what cost did God love us? If death itself had always been such a glorious good for us in the past, If God has already accomplished so much good for us, why were we so afraid at more death to self? We had no doubt in our mind that we could not do this. But could we trust Christ to do it in us? Could we? 
How can we love a child that gives us nothing back? Back to that same problem. God loves sinners and loves them to the uttermost. When we went to go and see him, it was a difficult it was a difficult thing. He just hung his head. That's it. There was no interaction, no eye contact, no recognition, no squealing. There was nothing. And I went home and I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, I just had this blank stare. And I remember saying to the Lord as I was wrestling with this, God, how can I love someone that will give me nothing back? Absolutely nothing. And it's not just for a while as we had had, but maybe forever. And suddenly I realized, this is exactly how God loves me. What do I give God back? How do I enrich God? What are my pathetic ramblings compared to God's wisdom? What kind of interaction is my intellectual discussions with God compared to His infinite knowledge? What do I give God? Rebellion? I ignore Him? Isn't that exactly how God has loved me? God is in no way enriched because of me. And yet God's love is set upon me. God chooses to love me despite who I am, even for who I am. And I started to listen to everyone around me, the parents and what they say about their children. And, you know, you know we send out these sort of Christmas letters which summarize our family for the year. And, and always in those letters there's, you know, um, Johnny, we're so proud of him for getting this achievement. And um, Mary, we're so proud of her for coming first in her class. And this one for her athletics. And this one for his soccer. And this one for that. And I, and I thought to myself, well, what are we going to say next year? We're so pl- proud of Joseph this year who learned to clap his hands. Because we are so performance orientated. What does it mean to love someone not because of what they do, despite what they do, but you love them for who they are? And so Joseph has opened up the gospel for us. We could not think about Joseph without thinking about the gospel. We could not talk about Joseph without talking about the gospel. Joseph and the gospel have become so linked in our minds, he has excited and inflamed us about the gospel. Because when I see him, I know something of what it must be like to be God looking at me. When he doesn't look back at me, when he doesn't recognize my voice, when he doesn't respond to me, I know something of what it must be like to be God loving me. Just a little inkling. That is the gospel. Unconditionally. Inexplicably. Loved. And so our family have nicknamed him G.I. Joe. Great Impact Joe. That's what it stands for. 
Because wherever Joe goes, he makes an impact. It would not be an exaggeration to say that God has used Joe more than any other person, dead or alive, to teach me about the gospel. And he has yet to speak. And may never do so. God doesn't need our words. He doesn't need our mouths. He doesn't need our fancy talents and our degrees. He doesn't need anything to use our life for his glory. God can take a two-year-old kid and use him to teach a theologian with a degree stuff about the gospel that I'd never yet understood. Understood it, yes, in Romans 5, but understood it here, being overwhelmed by it, being excited by it, I'll close with Philippians 3. And I think you should turn there in answer to the question, why adopt? Philippians chapter 3. This is not why we began to adopt. But this is how I now understand why we would adopt why we would do anything, in fact. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Why adopt that I may know Him? That I may know Him. That I may know Christ. That is what I want. If anything I can do on this earth can help me to know Jesus Christ more, I want to do it. I want to be it. I want to pay it. I want to have it. I want to know Him. Why adopt? That I know Him and the power of His resurrection. Why do this thing? Because we are unable. Because it's impossible for us to love someone like this with the kind of love that we would need to. And I want to know God's power at work in me. God's resurrection power, God's spirit poured out in me. I want to know that power at work in me. Why adopt that we may share in his sufferings? Is this going to involve pain? You bet. Why adopt? Because I want to share in his sufferings. I want to know what it's like to be Jesus Christ suffering for doing good. Suffering for the glory of God. Why adopt? Because I want to become like him in his death. Nothing of me and all of God. Why adopt? Because by any means possible, I want to attain to the resurrection of the dead. That is my hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
every one of your children in our hearts cry out we want to know you we want to know your power we want to share in your sufferings we want to become like you we want to blaze a path all the way to heaven that will shine your glory in all the earth our spirit is willing but our flesh is so weak father you know that you know that in that deep down we resonate and we say yes lord and tomorrow we live as if we don't want that and so we pray that you would take your word this word we've even heard and by the power of your spirit you would transform us we thank you that you have given us your spirit and he will continue the work that you have begun until he completes it in the day of Christ Jesus and we look forward to that day when we will attain to the resurrection from the dead for your glory we pray Amen.